This is Adam Holzman, and this is All Strings Considered. Hey everyone, and welcome back to All Strings Considered. I'm your host, Scott Wolf. All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories, and by Audible.com. To get a free audiobook of your choice, go to audibletrial.com slash allstrings. There are over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. So when I finally took that leap to begin a DMA program, I came really close to studying with Adam Holzman at UT Austin, where he both founded the guitar program and continues to teach an amazingly talented group of students. If you heard the first GFA episode of All Strings Considered, you heard his student Chad Ibison playing in the competition finals and playing amazingly well. When I'm learning a new piece or searching the repertoire for something new, or if I just can't make sense immediately of a score, I like to listen to a variety of interpretations, and over the years, I've developed my sort of go-to list for recording artists. You know, David Russell, Manuel Barreco, Scott Tennant, Pepe Romero, and Adam Holtzman. So I was finally able to corner Adam for a little chat at the GFA Regional Symposium in downtown LA just a couple weeks ago. I finally got to ask him about some of those phenomenal recordings he did. And it's not just his recordings. Every time I see him live, I love his playing. And I'm often struck by his especially engaging approach to composers of the classical style, like Carulli, Giuliani, Soar. Somehow transforming works I'm often tired of or unsure about into music I absolutely adore. among the first classical guitarists to record on the Naxos label, and has recorded several series of complete works from a range of composers, including two discs of Fernando Sor, two discs of Manuel Ponce, a whole slew of Lauro's waltzes. Today you'll hear him discuss his preparations for recording, some excellent practice techniques, and he chose some great music from his ample library of recordings for us to listen to. So let's have Adam start us off by talking about one of his first recordings, his sore recordings. When the Naxos project started, which is now, wow, and it's probably 20-something year of existence, they called me as one of the first artists to do the recordings. And the first project was to record the complete works of Fernando Sor. And that was exciting, of course, but I had not played a lot of Soar, other than, you know, sort of the ones we all played, Mozart Variations, Opus 9 or Opus 14, or, uh, you know, maybe one or two others. So when they contacted me about that, they said, we'd like you to do the, the big sonatas. We think you'd be perfect to do the large sonatas, Opus 22, Opus 25. And then they said, and of course, you have to learn everything in between because we're trying to record in sequence. And the funny thing about this is this call came on I believe April 1st, and I, I don't remember what year, I want to say 91, 92, it was before my son was born, I know, so somewhere in the early 90s. And it was very curious because the first thing out of my mouth was, is this like a Canadian April Fool's joke? And Norbert Kraft, who of course has, and still is, the, the head producer for the Naxos Project for, for guitar, and as well as doing many other things that he does as a producer for Naxos, 
Um, Norbert said, no, 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 we don't have April Fools here in Canada. This is a real thing. And so he said, but we need you to start by doing these sore records. And he said, I want you to do these big sonatas. So I said, okay. So I went to the library at my school at the University of Texas and I got the scores. And that's how it started for me. I, of course, I knew the big sonatas. I had played the rondo and the minuet when I was a little kid of Opus 22. So I knew those. I didn't know the other two movements as well. And I had never played, although I had heard, I had never played Opus 25. Opus 25 is the other big sonata, the other oh. largest sonata. Um, the Grand Sonata. Well, Grand Sonata is Opus 22. It's an interesting form. It ends with a, oh God, does it end with a minuet or a scherzo? Classical sonatas of Soar's time usually have three or four movements, and the characteristics of those four movements tend to be fairly consistent. Usually you open the first movement with something fast and often heroic sounding in sonata form. We may at some point or another delve a little bit deeper into sonata form, but not today. The second movement is usually something lyrical and slow. The third, a dance. And then it's pretty common to do something fast and kind of flashy, but maybe a little bit lighter for the fourth movement. So for sort of use a dance-like and kind of stately dance like this minuet to conclude his Opus 25 is a surprising break with convention. Here's a little snippet of that minuet just so you can hear it. It has in its a very different piece, a very unique piece. Very difficult, typical sore keys, you know, you're in all these sort of flat keys and not always what you hope for, E, A, and D, as the guitar is always, you know, standardized. And so that was the first recording project. Mm. Uh, but I learned all that record in about the first, uh, about three to four months, and then we recorded it. And they were very happy with it, so they said, would you record another one? And I said, sure, and they said, we mean another sore record. And I said, okay, because it was a great opportunity to get to record and, and, and for a major label that was well distributed all over the world, well, incredibly well distributed all over the world. And they were very generous in how the, system, the, the contracts worked at the time. So the one thing that I was able to do in that one, I was given, I, was, I could choose from Opus 30 to Opus 60. And anything. so anything, as long as they were consecutive works. So, oh, okay. so had I had to pick there, a so. chunk in there. So I sight read through everything from Opus 30 to Opus 60 and okay. came up with a set of pieces in Opus from the Opus 50s. Uh, Soiree in Berlin, Fantasy Villageois, and, and also I had the, the new Soar Sonata had just been discovered by Pepe. Well, it hadn't, wasn't discovered by Pepe, but Pepe was in on the discovery. And he had just recorded it for Deutsche Gramophone. And he granted us the, he, he said it was okay to record. Yeah. We asked his permission because he technically still owned the rights to that piece. So that was the first piece on that second Soar record. So let's hear that recently discovered work from Adam's second Soar volume. Soar's piece is titled Fantasy for Solo Guitar and is in three movements. Again, getting away from that typical fast, slow, fast convention of structuring the movements, this beautifully played sonata goes from its heavy, brooding introduction with its imposing opening octaves and very gradually gets faster, lighter, and happier over the course of its three sections.
that all leads up to, after I did the two Saw records, they then said to me, okay, now you can choose what you want to record. <laughs> and then it was louder. No, it was Ponce. Oh, it was, was actually oh, Ponce. I love that. And uh, it was Ponce 1, and that was my choice. And I had always thought that we, there were not a lot of recordings of the 24 Preludes. Mm-hmm. And while I had only played one or two as a kid, you know, a few of the preludes out of the Segovia version of what we know as the preludes before Alcazar had done his version of all 24, I, I always had this sort of dream that that would be a really cool recording project. Mm-hmm. So they said, well, that's a great idea. And they said, but well, what else are we going to do with all the 24 preludes? And Norbert said, well, why don't we do just the little pieces of Ponce record? Because there's so many different, interesting little pieces. The Seis Preludios Cortos, pieces that Segovia had recorded, the postlude, Tres Canciones Mexicanos. There's so many interesting pieces. So there's a lot of pieces I had never heard, including many of the preludes that I had never heard because, of course, I grew up on the 12 that we knew from Segovia, but not the other 12, which was very exciting. So that's how the the first Ponce record came about. Starting with C major and going forward, just like Uh the 24 preludes and Uh fugues of Bach. The A minor one is actually a little tremolo study that nobody ever knows, and that's the number two, but Segovia didn't put it in his group of 12, so it was basically lost. But if you get the the Ponce complete work version, uh, the complete preludes, you see that. And that's a a very wonderful little tremolo study for students because it has a lot of internal tremolo. It's actually a tricky, tricky little piece. This prelude's only 30 seconds long, so I'm just going to play you the whole thing real quick. Again, it was Norbert's idea he wanted to do the Ponce 2 record. I was actually ready to move to Lauro at that time, and he said, no, I want you to do one more Ponce because we're thinking of doing the complete Ponce. And he said, I'd like you to do the pastiche pieces, the Baroque suites, and then the sonata for guitar and harpsichord. So I had never played any of that music, and I learned that about the next three or four months to make that record. We made the first three records, I think, in 13 to 14 months, mm. you know, having really never played any of that repertoire. So it was a right. lot. And then the, the second Ponce was not long after that. So that seems like a huge amount. I mean, twice you've mentioned that it took about three months to prepare a huge amount of repertoire. Three to four months, yeah. Do you have strategies that you can impart that allow you to learn that amount of music in such a short amount of time? Well, you know, I, I, I can learn repertoire very quickly. I can't memorize that quickly, like though I did not memorize all that repertoire. For all of those early recordings, I would memorize usually about 20 minutes that I would perform. I would pick what I considered my favorite set, 15, 20 minutes or so, and I would memorize that and perform that. And then I would learn the rest um, from the sheet music, and I would record with the sheet music uh-huh. because I really, I just couldn't memorize. And I, I said, I have, of course, many friends and students who can memorize probably all of that in a heartbeat. I could not ever memorize it. The skill of learning repertoire quick I've always had as far mm-hmm. as mind, fingers, ear, and how those three unite. That's always been a gift I have had where, I, where the memorization is, is harder for me. It comes with more work. But having the music in front of you is enough yeah. for the memory in order to give yeah, I can exactly still I can still music. play it the way I want to. Yeah. yeah. And actually the Naxos experience for me was very important because and this came with from discussions with Norbert Kraft, is my, my teachers had always told me to record myself. But after I went to make the first record, 
Norbert had said to me, he said, do you record yourself a lot? And I said, I said, no, no, not really. And he said, well, he said, you would be able to make these records more effortlessly and with less issues if you recorded yourself more. He said, because I know he knew my playing quite well. And he said, you know, I can hear you thinking things, but they don't always, they're not always what you think is coming out. He said, and that's true of any, any recording artist. He said, but if you taped yourself more, and that's something that I learned there, in those discussions with Norbert that I've kept with me 20 years later and I do oh, a sure. tremendous amount. So technique, not necessarily of learning, but of learning music making, right. which is even more important than learning quickly, I think, uh -huh. is that I do a lot of taping of myself in my practice and I encourage my students to do the same. Is what you think coming out, what's coming out? And, and you know, if you know you're like, I, I don't ever listen to a playback of mine for tone. You know, unless I'm looking at a new guitar or something, I'm not listening for tone, I'm listening for phrasing, for dynamics, for right. note grouping, for diminuendi, for balance. You know, are the notes clear? Is the shifts or phrasing the way I want? You know, uh -huh. there's all sorts of things that we as guitarists tend to do. Uh -huh. And that has been a tremendous help in learning to be a more musical guitarist, you know, a more musical musician, maybe. On that note, Let's hear the first two works that serve as a prelude to Ponce's 24 Preludes on Adam's first Ponce CD, Vespertina and Matinal. I believe the original use for these two terms was for sung prayers. A Vespertina would be sung in the evening and a Matinal at daybreak. Some of my favorite pieces to record on that record are actually the two that begin the record, which is the Vespertina ah. y Matinal, which okay. are pieces I had never heard in my life, nor, nor ever seen recorded. And when I learned them, I thought, my God, these are beautiful Ponce pieces. And, and we ended up liking them so much, Norbert liked them so much, he started the record with them. Ah. So it doesn't start with the Ponce Preludes, it starts with these two pieces, uh, Vespers and, and Matinal. Thank you. 
have this thing that I've had for many years that just sits on my sits on my stand. The easiest thing in the world. I don't have to set it up, don't have to break it down. I turn it on, I play into it. And it doesn't have great playback capabilities, but I don't need, I know what I sound like. So you get to a certain point in your practice session, you go, I'm gonna play the piece all the way through. Or, or I'm just gonna play those eight measures I just worked on, or mm -hmm. that phrase, or the or that uh, development section, or oh. that you know exposition, or whatever it is. So it's very it's, interactive. Oh yeah, oh yeah, it's not just the whole piece. When I'm preparing right before concerts, I will record the whole piece a lot to see, am I able to concentrate through it, learn, to keep my focus in the game throughout the entire piece, which really just means you're listening to everything you're doing all the time. Right. Um, but as I'm learning and I feel, well, if this is, I think, how I want this to go now, then I'll record it. And it might just be a section of the piece. It might just be a phrase, you know. And, and sometimes it's just to fix a fingering. If I think I, I think this fingering's working or this one's not, I'll try, I'll tape both ways, and I go, oh, boy, that was... That was easy. That one sounds terrible, and that one sounds pretty good, or uh -huh. very good, hopefully. <laughs> so that that helps a lot. I it's a that. great tool. It's a yeah. great tool, you know, because uh, you know you you as a teacher, you know, once or twice a week you work with the students. I mean, you have your hour lesson, then I have a two-hour studio rep class with all of my students every week. Maybe I have the, uh, a chamber lesson with them as well, depending on the semester. But they have to teach themselves six other days a week, you know not just the lesson with me, you have to teach yourself all the time. And the great, great player, great student is always listening. That's what it's, this is all about, is how good a listener are you? Um, and how real is that, is your yeah, perception exactly. of what's actually happening? Exactly, because playing is intoxicating. Right. You know, the, pl the act of playing is intoxicating. And so you get real excited about that, you know. And I can't tell you how many times as a teacher, and I'm sure you have as well, Scott, as a teacher, heard a student come in and say, well, you should have heard me at home. It was really great. You know, I sounded like John Williams. You know, that's always my favorite. I, oh, I sound like John Williams at home. I said, bring me the tape. <laughs> tape it, bring it me. I thought, and the, and invariably, I say, no, you sound like you. Just a little bit better. Because you're not nervous. I'm not sitting in front of you. But you still sound like you. You know, And sometimes that's a good thing, you know, because you should sound like you. But the self-awareness of are you doing what you think you're doing, nothing brings that out like recording. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and, and I've always warned my students, your first true recording project, especially if it's a professional recording project, but even not, even if it's something you do yourself, will be like going 15 rounds with Muhammad Ali. It's, it's yeah, you've been there, yeah. Ever done. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just the hardest thing. And I, and I can always tell when my students come back from those sessions because they, they have that look like they've just been pummeled, you know? <laughs> and that's what it is. And I know now it's the same for me. The first couple of recordings were very hard. So while we're on that and while we're on mm -hmm. teaching, mm -hmm. I mean, your student, I've seen so many of your students get into the GFA finals or get into these, you know, they're always winning competitions. And the idea about competitions, a lot of the time there's this stigma that they end up machines. But your students to me never sound like machines. They're precise, but I always feel like the music is of utmost importance. Good. In your teaching. And I'm curious how you get them to be so amazingly precise without losing that, the musical quality. I mean, how do you well, those, um, balance those? Ideas? You know, it really starts because for me, the musical quality is far more important than the technical perfection. Far more important. And, and this, this goes back to something my, my brother, who was my teacher, always used to say, and still does say, I'm sure, to his students. That would be Bruce Holtzman. If all you have is technical perfection, then when you don't have that, you have nothing. So if you're not on, technically, you've really got nothing because there's nothing there. But if you're a really musical player, 
you know, not that we want to miss, but if we're not necessarily having our best day, the music, the power of the music should still come forward. That's sort of my basis for, for where I start, both with my own playing and with, with working with my students. Um, I'm, I'm extraordinarily fortunate. I've had great students over the years. In fact, we just had a, I just gave a 25th anniversary concert at UT and my students gave, created a book of memories for me, which was just delightful. And, and they all had their little quotes and quips of things that I've said to them or that they've said to me over the years. And it was great. But, but for me, the, the, the music is far more important than being able to play perfectly. Being able to play perfectly is wonderful, and it's an incredible skill, and by gosh, I wish I had it myself. But being able to play musically is, being, is what's worth playing. That's why playing is worth it. That's why making art. And one of the things I always tell my students is, you know, if you look at a painting, do you ever think, I wonder how fast he painted it? <laughs> you know? I mean, I mean, if that's, you know, it's like looking at a great meal and thinking, boy, can I eat this in 12 seconds? Or, you know, a minute, minute 42, you know? And, uh, and, um, so that's the, that's the key, is really, it's the inside of the pastry that matters. Uh -huh. You know, it's what's inside the piece. And, and, and your job as the player or interpreter, whatever term you want to use, is to try to find the center of that work. What, is, what makes this work special? Is it the melody? Is it the harmony in the melody? Is it a group of notes, a group of tones, a group of pitches that come together in a certain way, either non-abstractly or abstractly? Is it texture? Is it color? Is it rhythm? Is it how do all those things work together? And then how do you work to bring those out? But I'm always right. looking for either intervallic relationships or rhythmic relationships or harmonic relationships that once you unlock those keys it's almost as if the structure falls out in front of you mm -hmm. and you just kind of smile and you go that's what opens the door and it's like one of those movies where they open the lock and then all the other doors open you know uh -huh. like one of those uh, treasure treasure movies you know yeah. and it's not always that easy of course um, and it's not always true there are some pieces where it's far more complicated than that either mm -hmm. intentionally or not by the composer it's not just one or two things but I'm always looking for how how the world within the piece interacts then then therefore what makes that piece special I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate right now I have three former GFA finalists who study with me at the same time and another student who also won many competitions he hasn't won a GFA prize but he's won many competitions and each of them are incredibly different they play completely differently one from the other. Yeah, and I love that yeah. too. And they all, most importantly, they want to get better. They want to get better. And that's what I'm always looking for in a student. You have to be musical, have, have technical, great technical skills, have a great ear, intelligence, and the want to be better. With so many extremely high-level students, I have trouble imagining what a lesson would be like. And so I asked Adam if during the lessons, is it intangible things that they talk about? And he said, no, actually, in fact, it's all in the details. A thing along those lines, um, I think that kind of says it. It was, it was for years when you know people ask me what I do, I'd say, oh, I'm a you know, classical guitarist, classical guitar teacher, professor of classical guitar. I'd have in different ways I'd say what I do. Now I've come to the point where when people ask me, I smile and I say, I teach Olympic guitarists how to play, <laughs> how to play just a little bit better. And it's, I enjoy saying that because I really think of my students, all of them, as Olympic level students, just the way you would deal with an Olympic level athlete. And if you think about that, when you have a student who's, if you're a swim coach or a track coach of an Olympic level athlete, what are you trying to do? You're trying to make them 0.02 seconds faster. Yeah. Okay? So how do you do that? Well, maybe you refine what they eat, 
Maybe you refine the way they sit in the box before they come out and out of their stance. Maybe you refine something on the computer in their stride. Well, that's what we do. We refine maybe a little technical thing like where their, where their hand is at a certain point in shifting or how to get different colors or how to, when to use. More importantly, it's when to use different things. That's, that's really the real musical details. Um, I have this one new student who has uh, a habit of keeping his thumb very high when he shifts up the neck, even to the treble strings. And, and he does it amazingly well. And I said to him the other day, I said, you know, you don't have to change, but when you teach others, allow them to adjust their thumb to the height that they're playing up at the height of the neck so that it's not so high, because you're gonna miss. I said, and even you miss a little bit, you won't admit it. I said, and you'd do better if you came down a little bit. And he sheepishly looked at me and he said, oh yeah, I did do that, don't I, you know? <laughs> and he can, you know, play anything at any tempo, pretty much. So, but, um, it's refinement of musical detail work, stylistic work, you know, how to play chords in different string spacings, how to um, approach a phrase differently. Like I said, it's how you make an Olympic athlete just a little bit better. There's uh -huh. little things that help them, uh -huh. that make them smile and go, oh, I never thought of that, or, or that's, well, that's oh, you know, right, that's a different, I can do it, I, I can do it right. Easy. It's easier, yeah. right, it's a little easier, just yeah. a little bit easier. Uh -huh. And I learn from them too, fingerings, or they'll do something and I go, wow, I'm gonna steal that, you know, that works really well. <laughs> yeah, that was great. So, that happened just the other day. Yeah. And it's just like anything, whether it's, a, it's wine, good wine or cigars or good food, you have to make taste judgments, uh -huh. you know? And one of the things I, I, I always tease with my students is you're not gonna put, you know, mustard on that on that hamburger, are you? You know, because I'm a ketchup guy. So, you know, you have ketchup and mustard people. You know, uh, you're not going to do that. And I said, I'm putting that on, it just doesn't work right, you know? Now, mustard's great, and I love mustard, but it's got to be in the right place. I love it when a student plays something, and it's not necessarily the way I would choose to play it. My goal is never to make every student play the way I would play it. It's to make sure they know why they're playing it the way they play it. And I always say that to my students when they come in with a new piece. I always say, every note in its place, first. Every note, I always say, one God, one country, one tempo. I want you to know the rhythms exactly before you do rubato. Before you mess with it, you have to know exactly what the composer has told you, and then tell me why you're doing what you've chosen to do. So if you choose to do something and it's not in time, you tell me why, and then we go from there. You know, and and sometimes I'll say, oh, that's beautiful, or sometimes I'll say, that's a terrible place to do that. You know, <laughs> so so it, it depends. You know, but but they have to start knowing the score, and I think that that's really crucial. So I get on them a lot about that, about the, especially the first time I hear a piece. You know, mm -hmm. uh, if you're going to do a lot to it, you better have a darn good reason, not because you heard somebody else do it. Uh -huh. You know, because that's what, especially with the proliferation of playing on YouTube and those kinds of. Uh, and bad and well, but yeah, but you know, uh, you know, if you have good students, they're usually listening to good playing on YouTube. <laughs> they're you know trying to, and so at least, and so they'll kind of I'll say, well, that's a, that's great, but who, who, where'd you get that? Yeah. You know, and if it, and they say, no, 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 it's because this is what's happening in the in the harmonic movement, or this is what's happening in the in the phrase. I go, oh. Fabulous. You know, if they say, well, so-and-so did it that way, I go, yeah, and it probably works when he does it or she does it, but it doesn't work when you do it. So that's a, both a great tool and a, and a difficult thing to balance because of so many of them say, well, he does it this way, you know, or this person takes, takes that time there, you know, and I'll say, well, they might wear a blue tie. <laughs>
And our, you know, we might not want to wear a blue tie. It's interesting, but at the same time, it allows students, because one of the things, if I send somebody to YouTube to listen to a piece or to recordings, I always say, I want you to find five or seven or 10 different recordings so that you don't get focused on one, but you get focused on the piece. How many different ways can the piece sound? And I think that's a much better learning experience for the student mm -hmm. than to focus in on a, a, you know, a recording of one great artist. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, John Williams plays it this way, or David Russell plays it this way. But to listen to multiple very mature artists playing a piece, and then you can come out with your own version of it. And, and so YouTube can be a good tool for that, you know, and of course CDs. So if you're planning on traveling to see family or friends this holiday season, and you've already run out of All Strings episodes, now might be a good time to check out an audiobook from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com slash allstrings for a free book download. If seeing your family creates a mixture of excitement and dread, David Sedaris's autobiographical books, usually read by the author, will definitely put things into perspective. Okay, so on to our last portion of today's show, which highlights Adam's recordings of Venezuelan composer Antonio Lauro, which is probably my all-time favorite album of Lauro's music. And, and my connection to the Lauro really was through my brother and one of my former teachers, who was, of course, my beginning teacher and ending teacher, my brother Bruce, and my other teacher, one of my other teachers, Elliot Fisk. Because both Elliot and Bruce had studied with Illyrio Diaz. And it was always a dream of mine to study with Illyrio, which never actually got fulfilled. But the Lara was sort of, I grew up listening to Elliot play it and listening to my brother yeah. uh, play it and talk about Diaz, because they had both studied with him in, in Caracas and in Banff. And it was always a dream to go study with him and it never happened, but getting to record the Lara was about as close as I got. And that was really a lot of fun. Many, of course, were already in my ear, some in my fingers, but the majority not. I still play um, different ones. I play some of the sweet still. I usually play the first two movements very often. The first two movements, I love the Danza Negra and the, uh, the Registro. I still play El Marabino, which is always one of my favorites. Some from the, uh, the Quattro Valses Venezuelanos, uh, Maria Carolina, uh, Maria Luisa. You know, and, and really my favorite, if I have, El Nino is my favorite. When my son was born, I used to play that for him all the time, both before he was born and after. All that and Nesquicino Mexicano were the two pieces I remember. I used to play, my wife liked them a lot. Really, on the Laura record, I'm very proud of that whole record. Anything yeah. would be fine. Just choose what you like, you know. Um, one of my students actually came into his lesson the other day. I had given him some suggestions of pieces to learn, mm -hmm. and he said he wanted to learn the triptycho of Laura. Mm -hmm. And I said, the triptycho? I think I, th I recorded that. He goes, yeah, it's on your record. And he said, he said, I just love those pieces. And I said, really? I said, you know, I've never had any didn't work on them. I said, go ahead, you know? And I said, uh -huh. I said, to be honest, I can't, I could not hum them right now. I can't right. remember. It's been so long. And you don't sit around listening to your own records, I hope, no. you know? <laughs> we have kind of a lonely thing. The records are sort of like your children and, you know, some things are a little, some things are stronger, some things you wish you had back to do again. And very often when I hear my own records, if they're on radio or, or and I don't know it's me, I'll listen and, and usually I'm pretty happy. So that's a good thing. Uh -huh. And I think, oh, that sounds good. You know? Oh, who is that? So who is that? Right. <laughs>
I'm gonna end the show today with a set of Laudo's Venezuelan waltzes, but first I want to say thanks for listening to All Strings Considered. I'm your host, Scott Wolf. All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories. Okay, Antonio Laudo is one of the most important Latin American and 20th century composers for the guitar, and a contemporary of composers like Villalobos and Agustin Barrios. Like many Latin American composers of his day, his music is highly nationalistic. And in Laudo's case, he celebrates his Venezuelan heritage through Venezuelan waltzes, or voces venezolanos, which are often very fast and full of complex rhythms. Laudo's waltzes are virtuoso works for the solo guitar and tend to be named after or dedicated to members of Laudo's family. I'm going to play you a set of three, the Danza Negra, which is from his Suite Venezolano, which is heavily syncopated and is based on an Afro-Venezuelan dance, Adam's favorite, El Niño, which I believe is dedicated to Laudo's oldest son, and finally, El Maravino, which refers to the inhabitants of Maracaibo, where Laudo lived for some time. It's been my pleasure introducing you to Adam Holtzman today. I hope you enjoy his recordings of the Danza Negra, El Niño, and El Maravino. Until next time, here's Adam. <laughs>